This is the Frankly Daniel Show, and I'm the Daniel in the Frankly part of this enterprise. It's my weekly exercise of our First Amendment rights, and it's an honor to be here today with you. So much to cover, so much to say. Your time is precious, and I appreciate it. So let's jump right in. Where to, where to start? I mean, where, where to start? When you read as many articles and watch as many news shows and listen to as many podcasts as I do every week, you can only come to one conclusion. When everything's a crisis, nothing's a crisis. When everything's a catastrophe, then what's not a catastrophe? When America is in a panic, is the pandemic far behind? Unquestionably, in today's world of hyperinflated news headlines, everything's a catastrophe. Everything's a crisis. We're all in a panic, waiting for the next shoe to drop announcing it's another pandemic of one sort or another. Yeah, leave it to tiny tyrant Fauci to come up with another COVID variant to further Democrat Party politics. Now, I don't know about you, but I am really fed up with the Democrat Party, and in particular, the radical progressives, also known as socialist or quasi-Marxist, forcing our world to revolve around COVID hysteria. So what comes next? I mean, how far away can we be from another lockdown or another set of booster shots? I mean, I thank the Lord every day that I live in Florida. I have no idea if I could remain sane and live in New York or California and certainly not Washington, D.C. or New York City. Why would anyone want to spend a couple of hundred dollars to go to dinner at an upscale New York City restaurant if you had to show your vaccine passport and wear a mask in between bites of food. Now, that doesn't sound like fun to me. Even the most imaginative of us can't come up with the bizarre scenarios. They just, they just continue to come. The, the other day I had to look up the Greek alphabet to find out what comes after Delta. Now, for those of you who already know, let me share it with those of you who don't. The next COVID variant will be known as the Epsilon variant. And the Greek alphabet goes on and on, or until we get around to electing real Americans to lead our government. Because the people that are there now certainly aren't what you consider pro-American. I don't know if you've been following the back and forth between President Joe Biden and our truly remarkable governor here in Florida, Ron DeSantis. Ron doesn't go out of his way to pick fights with the White House. Frankly, he's pretty busy running a state of 22 million liberty-loving Americans. At the rate people are moving to Florida, I'm growingly concerned that this giant peninsula could sink someday. The economic activity here in central Florida is nothing short of miraculous. There's orderly growth and wonderful freedom, and we have a legislature and a governor who stand up for our constitutional liberties here in Florida. Now, I, I say this is re- a remarkable accomplishment, but, but well, it, it, it is in today's political environment. But it shouldn't be. All states should operate under the same constitutional principles. But we we know they don't. Let me give you one example of Joe Biden's uniting leadership on the issue of COVID. Here's an audio track 
from President Biden's August 4th press conference. See what you think of this. The escalation of cases is particularly concentrated in states with low vaccination rates. Just two states, Florida and Texas, account for one-third of all new COVID-19 cases in the entire country. Just two states. Look, we need leadership from everyone. If some governors aren't willing to do the right thing to beat this pandemic, then they should allow businesses and universities who want to do the right thing to be able to do it. I say to these governors, please help. But if you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way of the people who are trying to do the right thing. Mr. President, do you believe that Governor DeSantis and Governor Abbott are personally making decisions that are harming their own citizens? I believe the results of their decisions are not good for their constituents. And it's clear to me and to most of the medical experts that the decisions being made, like not allowing mask mandates in school and the like, are bad health policy. Bad health policy. Well, thank you, Joe. And now allow me to play for you a response from our governor, Ron DeSantis, to Joe's somewhat stupid and imprudent comments about Florida and in particular about Ron DeSantis's leadership. This is a guy that ran for president saying he was going to shut down the virus. He wasn't going to shut down America or the economy and shut down the virus. And yet what is he doing? He's bringing in people from over 100 different countries across the southern border. Every variant on this planet, some we don't even know about, are absolutely coming into our country that way. And what they're doing is People are coming and then they're farming them out all over the United States, putting them on buses, putting them on planes. Yep, importing COVID across our southern border. Of course, given that the border is open, you have to question, even if it's still there, uh, if not for the parts that are separated by the Trump wall, who'd know where the actual border is? I mean, Joe's agents are down there with a big eraser trying to make it go away. Soon Mexico is going to be part of the USA or vice versa, but COVID across the border is a very interesting and alarming statistics. Now, I know numbers on the radio are impossible to communicate, but uh, this one's pretty straightforward. In Hidalgo County, Texas, this is the county that includes McAllen, Texas. McAllen is just across the border from Reynoso, Mexico. Now, I, I know this uh, county and I know the city of McAllen well. In the past, I wrote and administered a federal grant to fund new allied health professions at junior colleges in McAllen and Laredo, Texas. Hidalgo County officials just reported that over the last six months, over the last six months, more than 540,000 illegal aliens have crossed the border from Mexico into Hidalgo County. Now, of these 540,000 aliens, more than 100,000 out of 540-100 tested positive for COVID. 540,000 aliens, 100,000 or more tested positive. That's nearly 19% positive rate. Now, that's what I call a pandemic. Despite these migrants, and yes, I refer to them as migrants because migrants move around, and these folks aren't bona fide, genuine refugees. In any event, despite testing positive, shows Homeland Security agents have continued to transport these infected migrants wherever they want to go. So they board buses and commercial airlines, and they travel wherever they want to go to in the U.S., and they're, they're dropped off. And worse yet, the agents don't tell anyone in charge of the city, county, or state 
Oh, here's a hundred new COVID-positive wannabe Democrats. They're now in your town. Now, this is a fact. There is no fiction involved. This is all documented evidence. But it's evidence you won't hear from anybody at the White House. Now, here's another curious statistic. The Biden administration is hysterically trying to pit vaccinated citizens against unvaccinated citizens. So much for Joe Biden's unifying America. Remember, there are no blue states, there are no red states. Now we have this, uh, there are only vaccinated states and unvaccinated states. According to the White House, this is the pandemic of the unvaccinated. So why take it out on the vaccinated? I mean, better yet, why take it out on the unvaccinated? After eight months of aggressive COVID vaccination campaigns, haven't people who've decided not to get vaccinated now made their choice? I'm vaccinated. I don't see the unvaccinated as a threat to me. The Biden administration acts as if people haven't made a conscious choice about vaccination at this point. And patronizing? Again, it's as if after nicely asking Americans to pick up their toys and make their beds and straighten their rooms, our parental government is now going to get really mad and punish us for their mixed signals and they have sent these mixed signals to Americans all along. I thought you meant that choice was mine. What about my body, my choice? <laughs> oh, I forgot. Abortion is different. That's about someone else's life and death. Babies don't get to decide to stay or go. The unvaccinated are making decisions about their own risk of death, not other people's risks. I find irony so ironic. Here's one to muse and enjoy. You, you'll never believe who's unvaccinated. On average, 36% of black Americans are COVID vaccinated. Now, overall, the vaccination rate, according to the Biden administration, is 70% of Americans. So if the overall vaccination rate is 70% and African Americans are only at 36%, this means that other non-black racial categories have vaccination rates even higher than 70%. Now, how did I arrive at that? Well, if you took this 36% out of the total vaccination rate, the vaccination percentage would go up for every other group. Now, no racial group has a lower vaccination rate than black Americans. But you haven't heard one peep from the Biden administration about lighting a fire under black America to get vaccinated. Biden's purposely shaming us as if we're supposed to get the message out to those folks Biden and company don't dare anger. No, 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 Joe, Joe's not going there. Instead, his tactic is to call out Republicans, conservatives, and rednecks, as if they're all different, for being anti-vaxxers. Uh, this is how completely disingenuous, non-transparent, and how deceptive this administration is with us, the American people. Now, Joe's about to come up with a quasi-mandatory vaccination order, probably today or early next week. He's going to withhold federal funds legally, or more than likely illegally, from universities, hospitals, nursing homes, and the likes if they don't demand their employees get vaccinated. Now, this is going to be quite interesting because as of, as of two weeks ago, only 50% of federal employees at the CDC and the NIH were vaccinated. Now, I'm sure black America has a very good reason for not wanting to participate 
in Biden's Fauci-driven obsession with vaccinating America. For the record, I'm pro-vaccine for the elderly and anyone at risk. I'm not in favor of vaccinating children under 10 years of age without a lot more data. I'm happy to defend the black community's right not to take an emergency use only vaccine at this time. I mean, personally, I think they would benefit from the vaccine, but, but that isn't the issue. Mark my words, we're going to see racial discrimination as the consequence of demanding vaccine passports of everyone and denying opportunities to people who don't have one. Unvaccinated folks are going to be denied access to public events, entertainment, to food service, and a host of other activities. Now, Mayor de Blasio in New York City has already announced that on August 16th, if you don't have proof of vaccination, you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do this, and uh, you get the idea. So what happens when 64% of black Americans aren't going to be allowed into public places, entertainment venues, dining, etc., etc.? What will black Americans say to being denied service and ridiculed as anti-Americans and enemies of the public good? Well, of course it's racist. Try and explain that you're discriminating against them because they're not vaccinated and not because they're black. I mean, this stuff drives me up a wall. The White House claims that 33% of all COVID cases are now in Texas and Florida and that our hospitals in these states are overwhelmed with COVID cases. Well, let me play for you a clip of the August 5th roundtable discussion with Florida State Hospital CEOs about their current patient population. This is a, a, a usual event, and it's open to the public, and it's from all the hospital CEOs across the state. Here's the clip. Right now, we're down to 25% of our inpatients in ICUs. Other hospitals in South Florida are seeing even less numbers than that, between 15 and 20%. Other patient ICUs. 80% of our patient census is non-COVID patients. These are critically ill patients, many of whom delayed care during the pandemic. At TGH right now, we have 126 COVID patients. We're a 1,041 bed hospital. I, I hope that you noticed the last comment from Tampa General Hospital CEO. Tampa General is a 1,040 bed top U.S. News and World Report hospital. They have 126 COVID-positive patients, and not all of these are in the hospital for COVID. Now, this same happens when counting children in hospitals with COVID. Every patient admitted is automatically tested for COVID. It happens in all hospitals all the time now. So if your child is in an auto accident and is admitted to the hospital and has a positive COVID diagnosis, COVID is incidental to having been injured in a car accident. They didn't come to be hospitalized because they have COVID. Let's hear another clip from Ron DeSantis from the same press conference uh, as the clip above we just listened to. And what is his big solution? What is he so upset about Florida? His solution is he wants to f have the government force kindergartners to wear masks in school. He doesn't believe the parents should have a say in that. He thinks that should be a decision for the government. Well, I can tell you in Florida, the parents are going to be the ones in charge of that decision. And one of the major uh, medical people in his administration just recently told parents that they should be wearing masks at home when they're around their own children. This is insane. 
Uh, by the way, that federal medical advisor Ron was talking about is Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the National Institutes of Health. Now, Dr. Collins received a world of blowback, even from the medical community, after he made these stupid statements about parents wearing masks at home in front of their children. And, and then he tried to walk those statements back by saying, uh, he didn't mean this and he didn't mean that, but he didn't know what he meant, but uh, just put a mask on. Now, personally, I think he was trying to out Fauci Fauci. Uh, soon they'll have us masking the dead. So if you listen to any of my prior Frankly Daniel shows, you know my position on masks. In short, they don't work with this type of virus. Oh, if you're coughing and hacking, then by all means, put a mask on, especially if you're going to be going around and uh, being close to somebody else. But by and large, this is an airborne, aerosolized respiratory disease. Masks make little to no difference, especially if you're outdoors. It's even more ridiculous and cruel to force a face mask on a child for seven or eight hours a day to attend school. As I've said before on last week's show, Apparently, only 50% of unionized teachers are vaccinated. That's why the union president started the week off by saying uh, she hopes that schools would open soon, but there may be some delays or whatever. Since then, she's come out with a more positive position, saying teachers will be there opening day. I mean, probably, like, maybe, like, who knows? whatever the teachers decide to do, you know the Biden administration and the CDC will back them while all the time saying that schools should be open. Not even the World Health Organization recommends masking children under the age of 11 or 12. I mean, what does the rest of the world know that we don't? Well, they don't have to deal with the unmovable and unscientific Dr. Fauci. My worry is as soon as the pharmaceutical companies are ready to vaccinate children as young as six months of age, we're going to have one huge parental uprising. I mean, if you think that critical race theory is a hot item, wait until the government tries to force parents to inject babies and children with these vaccines. Trust the CDC? Oh, it's like all those stories they told us about staying six feet apart and wiping down all our groceries with Clorox wipes, on and on and on. I know the science and knowledge changes. Now that's the rub. Tell me now it's okay, and then later you say, oh, uh, we were wrong, but we thought at the time that we were right. Wrong. And now the heavily Democrat-controlled counties in Florida, like Broward County, are they going to defy Governor DeSantis' executive order against masking children uh, unless their parents so desire. That's Ron's position. The governor has said that he'll simply stop funding those schools until they comply. So we have all kinds of funding threats. Well, I'm 120% in favor of that. So here in Florida, masks are optional. Here's another audio clip from Governor DeSantis as to why he made the decision to ban forced school child masking in Florida. In Florida last year, in our school districts, we had some that had mass requirements, others that didn't. The ones that didn't, those counties had lower per capita cases than the ones that did. And so it's not proven uh, to really impact viral transmission in schools. Yes, so there was a natural experiment, uh, an empirical observational experiment, 
longitudinal one lasted the whole school year. Schools were open here in Florida. Those that had masks didn't have any lower rate of COVID infections than those that uh, did wear masks. Pretty simple. But the fight for children's rights continues in other states. I mean, take New Mexico, for instance. New Mexico is a very Democrat-controlled state. This week, the Floyd School Board in Roosevelt County, New Mexico, was suspended by the state's commissioner of public education for not going along with Governor Michelle Grisham's mask mandate for children. <laughs> yep, the five-member Floyd School Board voted last week to make masks and social distancing optional and reaffirmed the decision in another vote Monday despite warnings from the state officials that they could face suspension or other enforcement actions. The state commissioner said in a memo to the board members that the state agency has a responsibility to ensure a safe and healthy environment for all staff and students. In other words, only 50% of the teachers are vaccinated. Uh, we cannot put students and staff and their families at unnecessary risk as we continue the fight against the Delta variant. By ignoring these basic safety measures, the board impairs the ability of the district to offer safe and uninterrupted in-person learning opportunities. See, we're back to that threat. We're not, we're not going to open the schools. This is the first I've heard of where a district school board who had numerous complaints from parents about mask mandates last year, did the right thing and made masks optional. It's up to the parents. So what's their reward for being responsive to parents? Well, the state suspends the community's elected school board. This just reaffirms that parent and, and parents and their children, they don't have any rights in Democrat-controlled states. Everything is a top-down decision, especially if those at the top are woke Democrats. Well, believe it or not, I'm going to play another audio segment from Governor's response to Joe Biden. Uh, tell me what you think of this one, and I promise this is the last one. And law-abiding citizens have to produce proof of their medical records just to go to the gym or attend an event or just to participate in everyday society. He wants that, but yet if you want to vote, he thinks it's too much of a burden to show a picture ID when you're voting. Yes, good old Jim Crow Joe Biden wants us all to have a COVID vaccine passport. We have to be able to produce this in order to enter any number of public events or access services. But when it comes to something like voting, well, as long as you can sign your name with an X, that's good enough for him. Well, as much as I feel the need to rail against the Biden administration's handling of COVID, masking, and parental rights, I promised last week to get into a serious discussion about the radical left's attack on merit-based admissions to our nation's 170 public exam high schools. These merit-based admissions schools are under attack in the name of the left's twisted racial equity drive to make all issues about skin color. No, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read an article I just published on the America Out Loud network entitled The Dumbing Down of America by the Truly Dumb. I encourage you to take a look at it. It's an important supplement to what I'm going to talk about today and next week. And I have another article on the same subject ready to post this coming week. The issue I address in this article the problem I'm trying to bring forward is that we have 170 meritocratic public 
exam high schools in America. And they're under attack by power-drunk critical race theory enthusiasts. There's no mistake about it. The left is out to destroy how these high-octane academic institutions choose students to attend these schools. Importantly, their demands to what they perceive as racism will destroy these hallowed institutions of public school academic excellence. To give you an idea of how small the number of 170 schools is and how elite these schools are, we have more than 20,000 public high schools in America. These 170 exam schools represent less than 1% of all public high schools in the country. Just just 1%. Actually, it's 0.85% if you want to get technical. And every school has eight legitimate applicants for every open seat. If I had my way, we'd add another 500 or perhaps even 1,000 public exam high schools across America. But we don't have this option. And therefore, we've got to defend and protect and cherish these 170 hallowed institutions. Now, America is a nation of 331 million Americans, and I truly believe we have enough exceptionally bright, talented, and most importantly, hard-working young 8th grade scholars waiting to fill additional merit-based academic centers of excellence that we currently call exam schools. But alas, we only have 170 of them, and my article is a call to arms to defend these last bastions of merit and promise. And believe it or not, the radical progressive left, they just they can't leave well enough alone. These are your social justice warriors, your racial equity activists, the destroyers of all merit-based American institutions. Merit has no place in their America today. Merit, according to them, is a discriminatory construct thought up by a dominant white culture employed to discriminate against people of color, but in particular, black Americans. Now, as a point of reference, it's only become popular to say people of color in an attempt to be racially inclusive. But let's face it, it's just another euphemism for black Americans. These schools are like the Ivy League of all high schools. The difference is that there's no tuition. They're open to all students across the school district, and the admission criteria is clear. There's no favoritism. The buzz in education today is that finally America is reckoning with its long-standing racial animus for people of color in public K-12 through education. And despite the fact that we've had 55 years of affirmative action in education, the average black American student continues to underperform on nearly every academic standard measure of learning. Well, I'm up against a break, and rather than stop in mid-sentence, let's take a break now. Oh, so please don't move that dial. The best is yet to come. You all come back now. I'll be here. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall Vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD for a 20% off 
your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology, designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. There was a time when Americans could rely on the Fourth Estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Greetings and hallucinations. (laughs) Welcome back to the Frankly Daniel Show. Before the break, we were talking about merit-based public exam high schools. Now, when you look at education outcomes in California, no wonder the governor is being recalled. Here's a short audio clip of Larry Elder, a black man running for governor of California against Gavin Newsom. As you know, Gavin Newsom has been recalled by the voters of California. 75% of black boys in California, I'm not making this up, Sean, cannot read at state levels of proficiency. And that was pre-pandemic. And the levels of proficiency aren't very high. Nearly half of all third graders cannot. And they lost a whole year of in-school education while, as you pointed out, his own kids were enjoying in-person private education. It is why one of the many things I'm going to do if I'm fortunate enough to be elected governor is to push for choice. The money should follow the child rather than the other way around. The polls show that black and brown parents overwhelmingly want school choice, and they keep pulling that lever for the Democratic Party that's not giving it to them. Well, this is obviously a clip from a recent Sean Hannity show on Fox Primetime. Larry Elder, who if you followed his nationally syndicated radio show, you know he's quite knowledgeable about California's public education, especially for black children. Larry recognizes that that to get to the right results, you you got to start in kindergarten. You can't wait until children reach adolescence and then test them to see if they've learned anything. Larry, like myself, has been a long-standing advocate of school choice. But Larry knows that black student academic underperformance is unquestionably complex. The research literature is replete with arguments about the most important variable explaining this phenomena, which in many respects Hispanic Americans are beginning to mirror. We've heard it's family poverty, fatherless homes, under-resourced schools, the dearth of black teachers, but the current reason in current favor among radical progressives is racism. But back to the public exam schools. 
So what exactly are public exam schools and why all the controversy? By definition, exam schools are centers of academic excellence. Perhaps you're familiar with some of the exam schools by name. For instance, there's Boston Latin and Boston Latin Academy in Boston, Massachusetts. Of the eight exam schools in New York City, three of them, Stuyvesant High School, the Bronx High School of Science, and the Brooklyn Technical High School, are famous for, among other things, having produced 14 Nobel Prize laureates. And the other two exam schools often in the news these days are Lowell High School in San Francisco and the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology in Alexandria, Virginia. Today, if time permits, I'm going to speak directly about Lowell High School in San Francisco. But if not today, we're certainly going to get to it next week. But the radical progressive activists' accusations of racial discrimination against these schools' admissions policies is really quite typical of what they're all experiencing. Now, many of these schools have been in their communities for decades. For instance, the Lowell High School was established in 1856, while Boston Latin got underway in 1635. As a matter of full disclosure, the Boston Latin School is across the street from the Harvard University School of Public Health, where I was a doctoral student. Furthermore, my eldest son is a top 10 student graduate of Boston Latin. The founders of these schools, their founders and their current administrations, have designed these schools to advance scholarship opportunities for the best qualified public school students. To this end, exam schools select and admit students based on various prior academic performances, but most often they employ standardized measurable criteria. For instance, exam schools judge applicants on their middle school GPAs and scores from 8th grade standardized cognitive tests like the Preliminary Scholastic Aptitude Test, the PSAT, or the Independent School Entrance Exam, the ISEE, or students in New York State take the Specialized High School Admissions Test, the SHSAT. In the case of the Big Three exam schools in New York, there's eight of them actually all together, but the Big Three, they employ only the scores from the Specialized High School uh, Admissions Test, as designated by state law. In all cases, students from across a city or a school district take one of these exams as part of their application process. Now, in addition to standardized test scores and grade point averages, these schools also carefully review a student's attendance and punctuality records before making final decisions. You'll see in a moment why attendance records are important. Once an exam school sorts and selects the top applicants, it mails out offers to students across the city or the district. Now, reasonable people consider these quantitative-based admission standards as being merit-based admissions. Moreover, many of the selected students qualify for free or reduced-price lunches. This is a proxy for understanding that usually 35% of each class comes from families in the lower quartiles of earnings. In other words, it's not a bunch of rich kids getting into these schools. So you might ask, why are these students working so hard to be admitted to into elite exam schools where they're going to have to work their butts off for four years? Because the comparable private school would cost them close to twenty-five or $32,000 a year in tuition alone. 
Now, isn't this what public education is about, giving opportunities for anyone willing to put in the effort to make something of their natural talents and gifts? You don't have to be wealthy to attend one of these exam schools. You just have to be proven, hardworking, and dedicated as a learner. The mission of exam schools is to select the best scholastically performing students and continue their academic development at the highest levels. After four years, exam schools have shaped these top-ranked high school graduates into scholars ready to enter our nation's more challenging academic environments like MIT, Caltech, Harvard, Stanford, and the like, 98% of exam school graduates take the SAT exam for college entrance, whereas less than 65% of regular public school graduates do the same. Usually 98% of exam school graduates apply to and are accepted into the top-tier colleges and universities each year. Also, as I point out in my article on the America Out Loud Network, 97% of exam school students graduate in four years, whereas only 68% of students at schools with no academic or geographic criterion graduate on time. These exam schools are among the top of the top best high schools in the nation. This includes both private and public high schools. But remember, all of the exam schools I'm talking about are in Democrat stronghold school districts with progressive school boards, progressive superintendents, and progressive city, county, and state political leadership. These are all members of the woke CRT multitude of New Age racists. Remember, CRT supporters, they advocate reverse discrimination against whites as the only remedy for systemic white racism. But here's the rub. Without exception, white and Asian American students dominate acceptance to these 170 exam schools. And it's elementary to see why white and Asian American students have the highest test scores, the highest GPAs, the best attendance, and the best punctuality records against all other racial categories. But make no mistake, exam schools didn't design objective criteria to thwart any particular race as charged by radical progressives. After all, Asian Americans are a minority race in this country, and it's a mistake to think of all Asians as heralding from the same country, culture, or ethnicity. Many of these Asian Americans are first or second generation Americans. English is often the second language spoken in the home. Well, let me share with you a couple of stats about San Francisco, the home to the Lowell High School. 35% of households are headed by a foreign-born person. San Francisco is 36% Asian American. 43% of households speak another language other than English. The city is only 15% Hispanic, so it's often not Spanish we're talking about as the second language. Now, just because black and Hispanic applicants have consistently done poorly on standardized tests, and on average have unimpressive GPAs and poor attendance records, this is not evidence of race selection bias. Remember, exam schools control none of these variables. Thus, they're left to select student applicants from the school district's broader pool of 8th grade graduates. Nevertheless, there are only so many open seats each freshman class. And while each school accepts between five and six hundred new students every year, 
they in turn have to tell six to eight times as many students that they've been turned down. Now this is not to say that many of these applicants aren't qualified to attend an exam school. That's why I said it's too bad we're not opening more high-level exam schools. It's just that in any given year and in any given school district, there are better candidates based on objective criteria. Let me be clear, entry is on academic merit. The color of your skin just doesn't matter. Who you know, who your parents are, who they know, or if they're an alumni of the school, it, it doesn't matter. If your siblings are current or former students at the school, well, it doesn't matter. If your parents are thinking of making a donation to the school, well, well that doesn't matter either. If you're an aspiring Democrat or Republican student, or your family belongs to a, either one of these parties, you're right, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that you have a proven track record of academic achievement over a consistent period of time. All that matters is that you're ready to take on the rigorous course study for the next four years. All that matters is that you're looking forward to the challenge and you understand that competition is going to take a huge step up. This isn't going to be a cakewalk. All that matters is that you understand that you're going to need your family's support and understanding through the next four years, which unquestionably will be the most challenging four years of your life. These exam schools are pretty much like the Navy SEALs of academics. I'm sure you've all been in situations in which you've realized there are smarter people than you in the room. Frankly, musicians I hear find this out all the time. Many people are gifted and talented in ways that you and I probably never will be. Well, allow me, tongue-in-cheek, to wow you with my somewhat crazy academic background and what I discovered along the way. I graduated in the top 20 students of my senior high school class of 500. I graduated from the University of Arizona Phi Beta Kappa. Then 20 years later I went to Harvard as a graduate student. Boy was I amazed at how truly competitive that environment was. And I'm being painfully honest to tell you that I was hardly the brightest bulb among a group of highly talented and gifted graduate students. I had to work my tail off just to keep up, and oftentimes, while I thoroughly enjoyed the challenge, I wondered what the heck I'd gotten myself into. Most of my classmates were 20 years younger than me. I was supposed to have the benefit of 20 years of additional wisdom. <laughs> ah, so much for wisdom, it doesn't always work out that way. But I really got a shock when I signed up for some undergraduate courses in economics over at the Harvard College. Well, I've known for some time during my professional career in academic medical centers that there are truly gifted intellectuals among us. <laughs> Nevertheless, this fact doesn't make it any less painful. <laughs> but back to progressives. Yeah, progressive activists are constantly using what I'd call a community racial composition or population demographics as a comparison standard for what the racial composition should be of any particular institution. For instance, if you're a country club and your membership is comprised of only 5% black and 6% Hispanics, yet the community at large is 15% black and 20% Hispanic, then obviously, according to the woke progressives, your country club is racist. This is the same argument that's being made by progressives 
in each one of these 170 exam schools. The demonstrable quantitative fact that Asians score higher on all measurable standardized tests of academic cognitive abilities is a fact among those applying for entrance into these exam high schools. Now, this doesn't mean that they're all more gifted and talented, but what they don't have as academic gifts, they make up through hard work and determination to succeed. Unfortunately, the black and Hispanic students in these 170 school districts are nowhere near the scores obtained by Asian and white students. Now, merit, as measured by standardized tests and grade point averages, aren't fluke measurements, particularly grade point averages over the course of the last two years of a student's middle school attendance. So why do blacks and Hispanics underperform on these measures? I will address answers to this question in some detail in my forthcoming article to be published this coming week on America Out Loud. But here's one detail that I think you're going to find interesting. During the 2015-2016 school year, definitely pre-pandemic, the Department of Education reported that there were 11,392,474 days of instruction lost due to out-of-school suspensions. No, not illness, due to student suspensions. This is the equivalent, in one academic year, this is the equivalent of 62,596 years of lost instruction. These losses were largely racked up by African American and Hispanic students. In many districts, the Department of Education reports that secondary students, in other words, high school students, lost over a year of instruction. Across all grades for every 100 students enrolled, there were on average 23 days of instruction lost due to out-of-school suspensions. Black students lost, on average, 103 days per 100 students enrolled, which is 82 more days than the 21 days their white peers lost due to out-of-school suspensions. Things are even more alarming when you look at the disparities observed with race and gender. Black boys lost 132 days per 100 students enrolled. Black girls had the second highest rate, 77 days per 100 students enrolled, which was seven times the rate of lost instruction experienced by white girls at the secondary high school level. Nevertheless, you, you can't let details like this get in the way of a good racial discrimination story, can you? We have to remember that race is the new class struggle for our American Marxist. Yes, our socialist and our Marxist, of course, they all reside in the Democrat Party. And I'm sure you've noticed that through identity politics, they've been ramping up race as a class struggle for at least the last six years. But consider this. I'm calling out the National Basketball Association as a racist institution. When I look at the racial composition of any given team in the National Basketball Association, I see nothing but flagrant racism. The racial composition of these teams comes nowhere near the racial composition of the communities in which they play or the cities in which they call home. One only has to look to see that each team is not only predominantly black, but these teams are overwhelmingly black. You may as well say that they're totally black, and if a white player should show up, by mistake, of course, they're obviously a token white bench warmer. 
this racism against white and Asian players, as, as well as Hispanic basketball players, is, is it's an abomination. It makes no difference to me that the National Basketball Association uses standardized physical assessments and performance auditions by which to make their team selections. All I care about are outcomes, and these outcomes are not acceptable. We don't want to see the best basketball players in America, or the world for that matter. Our concern is equity. Don't confuse equity with equal opportunity. We're not really concerned as to whether everyone has an equal chance to perform or to make a team. Our concern has to do with equal outcomes. When the community is 56% white, we expect these teams to come close to that percentage on their rosters. When we're talking about the Dallas Mavericks, I'm hard-pressed to see any of, of the necessary 30-40% to 40% Hispanic players on this team. I mean, where, where are the Hispanic players? When we're talking about the Golden Gate Warriors, why isn't this team 42% Asian? Currently, there are zero Asians on this team. Racism could never be clearer. In fact, on average, given that blacks represent only 13-14% to 14 of the American population, no team should have more than 20% of black players on any given team. Now, if I said this in earnest, you'd think I was a flaming racist. And I would be. Nothing could be more ridiculous in sports. Professional sports and these 170 public merit-based exam schools are some of the last bastions in our American society that prize excellence and talent. They also prize hard work, determination, persistence, and courage. People who compete in merit-based activities forego a lot of other more enjoyable life activities in pursuit of their dream to be the best they can be in their particular sport or at one of these 170 public exam high schools. I could make the same baseless claims of racial injustice when I look at America's track and field competitors in this year's Olympics or any of the past Olympics going all the way back to when Jesse Owens, a black man, who in 1936 embarrassed Adolf Hitler by winning multiple gold medals in track and field. Our Olympic sports teams are they're 100% African American. Now, that's not racial. That's just pure God-given human speed. Very few people have this talent. One of the ironies of ironies is that this, in these same cities that many of these exam schools reside, there's also what you might call exam academies of performing arts that require student auditions or exams, if you will, in their particular talent as a prerequisite for selection. If a white girl can't play the violin or can't play it very well, or an Asian boy can't remember his character's lines in a given play, then they don't have any business applying to a school of performing arts, regardless of race. These schools aren't places to learn how to play the violin. They're places to learn how to excel at their God-given talent. Whatever happened to, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Each one of these students that have been accepted into these merit-based programs has a dream. Radical progressives are trying to strip away these dreams 
and is beyond reprehensible. Parents everywhere who are concerned about opportunities for their children should be concerned about what the radical left is trying to do in forcing the hand of these schools to abandon excellence and replace it with racial demographics. Well, we only have a few more minutes in this show. I'm going to come back to this next week. And please look at those articles on on America Out Loud. But you might just ask, how disparate are the admissions outcomes? And I can tell you right now, without exception, white and Asian American students dominate the enrollment at all of the 170 public exam schools. And it's actually an order of Asians and white American students dominate. Let's take a quick look at Lowell High School in San Francisco. It has nearly 2,900 students. Currently enrolls less than about 2% black compared to 8% district-wide and about 12% Hispanic students compared with 32 in all schools. Perhaps this is a better way to look at it. Whites make up 41% of San Francisco. At the Lowell School, they make up 18%. Blacks make up 6% of San Francisco. They make up 2% of Lowell. Asians make up 36% of San Francisco. They're nearly 60% at Lowell. And Hispanics make up 15% of San Francisco, but only 10% of the Lowell High School. But you think that these statistics were way out of whack. In fact, the school board is changing, is changing their admission policy to go to a lottery, of all things. And there's so much to say about the lottery that they've gone to, which is really a rigged lottery. But if anything, they're going to increase the number of whites. They're hardly going to increase the number of blacks because there's only 6% black in San Francisco to begin with. And as far as Asians, they're going to lose seats. But they're going to lose seats possibly to Hispanics, but mostly to white students. So it's really a head-scratcher. Not only that, when you take a look at other things, other demographics of San Francisco, you know, 93% of homes in San Francisco have a computer. 90% of homes have broadband connections. Why you would want to disallow obviously highly qualified Asians and replace them with white students who are far less qualified is a real head-scratcher. But this is the kind of idiocy that's been going on. I mean, in short, we're wasting human capital to buy some kind of social racial equity. Perhaps if the United States was the only nation on Earth, this wouldn't matter. But we're not alone. Public investment in human capital is essential if America is going to remain internationally, technologically, and economically competitive with nations pouring massive resources into public education. Personally, I believe the radical race-driven activist and policymaker should direct their efforts on closing the achievement gap early in a student's academic career instead of trying to close the racial gap at the exam school admission process. It costs just as much to educate a gifted student as it does an underachieving one. I'm not saying racial harmonizing and balance aren't important goals, quite to the contrary. But the other question that begs asking is why blacks and Hispanics are so bad at test taking and why they can't meet the other criteria 
currently required of white and Asian exam applicants. Well, a time, a time has just slipped by. It's gone so fast. So much more to come next week. So much more to say about this. Lord willing, I will return. I regret I have only one life to give to my fellow conservatives, and I regret I had only one hour to give to this topic today. I hope you found it informative. Please follow me on Twitter. I do follow back. You can find me at DFB Harvard Daniel Francis Baranowski. That's the initials. DFB Harvard. I can't possibly thank you enough. You were marvelous and so patient with me again today. Let's do talk therapy again next week. Same place, same time. Until then, my friends, cheers and blessings. Mm-hmm.